hey Rachel, serious question. Do you think Gambit is creepier in the comics or on the cartoon? Um, comics, Chris, obviously. Yeah, but in the cartoon, there's a, an episode where he tries to make out with Rogue while she's asleep. And then later, he catches her when she's falling and saves her life, quote unquote, even though she's invulnerable and can fly and then calls her fat. And that episode was written by an actual pickup artist. Point, but I'm still going to say comics because in X-Factor, they actually just straight up weaponized his creepiness. Wait, is that the X-Factor where they were pretending to be mutant hunters? No, later one. Okay, the one with Havoc where they all worked for the government? Later one. Oh, the one with Jimmy Madrox where they were kind of noirish private eyes. No, the current one where they're um, like in-house superheroes for a really thinly veiled Google stand-in. Oh. Well, anyway, someone hacks into fake Google's super secure servers and it turns out whoever it is is operating from the secret island headquarters of the Thieves Guild, or Thieves Guild, as we say, um, which Gambit, who's on the team, is now running. Well, wait, wait a second. I thought Gambit was exiled. Chris, do you really want to open that door? Because that's an externals thing and there's no turning back from that. That's going to be the rest of the episode if we go there. Okay, fine, fine. No externals. So they go to the Thieves Guild Island? Right. And it turns out the hacker is this dude named Nil who's somehow gotten a hold of Danger. Oh, wait, Danger? The X-Man murder room? Yeah, well, she's a robot now, but yeah, that danger. Anyway, she goes berserk, and Gambit, who for the record has never exchanged so much as three words with danger, decides the best course of action is going to be some minor sexual assault. So he grabs the crazy killer robot, the one who's already been, you know, like kidnapped and brainwashed repeatedly and held against her will for years as a training tool, and attempts to kiss her sane. Holy cats. Yeah, that's not even the worst part. Wait, what's the worst part? It works. What?! Rachel Edden. And I'm Chris Sims, filling in for Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the third episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we talk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. This week, Miles is off slinging comics at C2E2, so we are deploying an emergency backup host, comics writer and journalist Chris Sims, who's here to help me explain some of the many and frequently dubious X-Men animated series. You might know Chris from his writing on Comics Lions and Invincible Superblog, or from his own podcasts, War Rocket Ajax and Movie Fighters. That's right. Thank you, Rachel. And Chris, uh, really quickly before we start, is there a Movie Fighters Kickstarter going on? Is that still happening? There is indeed. It's got about another week left. We are super close to our goal. I actually haven't checked it today, so we might have passed it. We were about $500 away last time I checked. The idea is to make the Movie Fighters podcast, which was our premium podcast, free for a year, where Matt Wilson and I sit down and watch a movie and then explain why we are mad at it (laughs) for about an hour. It has been very well received, but uh, we did want to make it free so that people could find it a little easier on iTunes. So I feel like a lot of people who know the two of us from social media are expecting that we're going to spend the next hour just diehard fighting about Cyclops. Yeah, which is weird because, to be fair, he is your favorite X-Men. Yeah. He is my least favorite X-Men. Because you're wrong. But we have the exact same opinion of him. (laughs) Like, we arrived at those conclusions for the exact same reasons. Right. I mean, I like Cyclops because I identify with all of the ways he sucks. The other thing, too, is that we tend to like him for the same reasons and in the same arcs. Like, I I remember we'd been arguing and arguing, and then we were talking on on Twitter, and one of us put up a page from Whedon's Run, and we're like, yes, that's Cyclops at at his awesomest. And we were... and. It turned out that we liked the exact same versions of the character. And yeah, I, lo- I always say that I love Jacket Cyclops. <laughs> like, 
Like whenever Cyclops is wearing that cool jacket that he has that he gets in the uh, Morrison and Quietly run on New X Men, that Cyclops is great. When he puts it back on in Astonishing X Men, I was excited. Where does trench coat Cyclops fit on that spectrum? Trench coat Cyclops is no good. Also, bomber jacket Cyclops <laughs> is no good. So I want to come back to bomber jacket Cyclops because the two of us a while ago sat down and sort of looked at all of this and we figured out so we're about the same age. We've read a lot of the same comics. We have really similar taste in media. Like our, our taste overlaps a lot. And so we were trying to figure out what, what the difference is. And the difference we finally came up with is that you grew up watching the 90s animated series and I didn't. And specifically the the pilot episode, Night of the Sentinels, which I had on VHS. So I watched that tape a hundred times. Can you do the dialogue from memory? I can do a lot of it from memory. I can do most of Wolverine's lines because they're so great. The tell Cyclops, I made him a convertible. <laughs> Does a mall baby like chili fries? <laughs> That's my jubilee, my sassy jubilee. But Cyclops on that show is the worst. He is the absolute pits. I've written a series of X-Men episode guides for Comics Alliance that I am, I've just started season four. And I have consistently referred to Cyclops as the X-Men's dad. Because he's always trying to keep everyone else from having fun. He is. He is totally the worst in the animated series. And I had no idea until I I binged watched it on Netflix about two years ago. And yeah, if I had grown up watching that, I would have totally hated him too. But I would have also totally hated most of the rest of the X-Men. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. I think the only one who really comes away good is Wolverine, who is my favorite X-Men. Like legitimately... I love Wolverine. I think he's a cool character. And I will acknowledge that he is oversaturated. I will acknowledge that there are, percentage-wise, probably more bad Wolverine stories than any other character. But he's really cool on the cartoon, as Matt Wilson is fond of pointing out. He only gets to be the cool guy because he's playing off of Cyclops. Uh, Matt has this theory about Wolverine where solo Wolverine stories just don't work. Because Wolverine is, by his nature, an anti-authoritarian hero. He needs Cyclops to push back against. The problem is that you'd never sympathize with Cyclops on that show. Because Wolverine is like, we should go kill these robots. And Cyclops is like, well, hold on. The professor says... Well, he can't actually say kill, though. Because this is a 90s cartoon. So it's all going through broadcasting standards and practices. And they're really adamant about never, ever, ever using the word kill. They always have to say that they are going to destroy someone. Or in my favorite uh, moment of the series, when Wolverine has a flashback to the Weapon X program where he is running through a a uh, training simulator where he is literally shooting things with guns and throwing grenades at them. He comes back and he's like, I remember this. This is where they trained me to take people out. That actually, I think that specific line gets gets cited in the BSNP notes. Um, a bunch of them are online. There's this website called Toonzone that's basically an unbelievably good archive of, of the histories of animated series and they've got a bunch of X-Men stuff up there. We're, they are amazing. I actually, I printed out a bunch of these. Um, some of them are, are sort of what you would expect in terms of really prudish cartoon notes. So like there's there's one point where... Um, Amelia Vote maybe is is leaving leaving the professor's house and she's she's leaving him and they're really adamant that she can't be carrying a suitcase because then it looks like they've been living together. That is such a weird note. And it Especially comes when up- the professor like lives with like all of those characters live in that house together. Yeah, but they're not romantically attached, and I think she and he are. Well, in that, two in of that them episode, are. but two of them got fake married. Yeah, but you know, then it turned out it was by by a shapeshifter who wasn't real and you know, it's still better than the fake married that they got in the comics. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let that one slide. So let's see, they've got stuff like that. They've got they really hate the word but too. Like about half of the BSNP notes are you need to substitute a different word in the phrase whatever. Like with two T's, like your rear. Yeah, no, with two T's. So you can't say you can't say you're gonna kill someone. You can't say you're gonna kick someone's butt. 
Right. Um, yeah, you can you can say you know you can say destroy. You can say take out. My very very favorite note is even if they didn't have the proprietary names, you would know what show it was for, which is from the episode Sanctuary Part Two, which is another funeral for another person who isn't really dead. Please, could you just show the X-Men talking informally about Magneto over coffee or something, not having another death ceremony in the garden? <laughs> Look, they knew what they were getting into when they made a cartoon out of the X-Men. They knew there were going to be a lot of funerals for people who weren't really dead. Well, they knew exactly what they were getting into, because the, one of the interesting things about the 90s series is that it hews really closely to the comics of that era. That is both its, in a lot of ways, its greatest strength and its greatest weakness, is that it is jumping full on into 90s X-Men continuity. If you're 10 years old in 1992 and you're the kind of kid who is like you or like me, where you have this insatiable desire to find out more about stuff, mm -hmm. then it's great. You're like, wait, who is that guy? How does this work? What did he do with Professor X in the Korean War? Why did Professor X show Magneto memories of the Holocaust to make him stop being evil? Then you want to go find stuff out. So it's a great little cross-promotional tool. At the same time, it makes for a show that is ridiculous and confusing and convoluted as heck. And that's another interesting thing is the first season of X-Men animated series, and this is in 1992 when this just really wasn't done, is basically one long story arc. It was very important that the first couple arcs of the or the first couple seasons of that show did attempt to tell one continuing story. Unfortunately, in season three, that really falls apart because they do uh, the Dark Phoenix Saga and the Phoenix Saga. They do that as basically one 10-part story. But for some reason, episodes were delayed or they wanted to fill stuff out in a different way. So the episode orders got mixed up for everything that wasn't those two stories. So you have stuff that's coming from season four. You have episodes that are shown out of order in between the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga that makes things feel really complicated and weird. That's that's the season that brought in Sinister, isn't it? Or was that season two? Season two is the Mr. Sinister stuff, which is unfortunately a, a season-long plot, which is also weird because season one holds together really well. Season one is all about the Sentinels. It starts with uh, Night of the Sentinels where... Jubilee gets attacked at the mall and the X-Men kind of come together. Then it goes to Magneto being mad about the Sentinels. It, it focuses on that really tightly. Uh, the end of the season, they go to Genosha, they go fight Master Mold, they do all that stuff in the first season. And like you and Miles said, uh, I think last week, that makes a great enemy for the first season and a first arc. The thing that I really love about the X-Men is that they have this big metaphor at the core of it but they go blow up giant robots and that's how racism ends. Season two has this ongoing plot about Mr. Sinister and the Savage Land. For those of you unfamiliar with, with Mr. Sinister, he is basically the warm, throbbing heart of everything that is horrible about X-Men continuity. Um, he is a guy who's been around since the Victorian era and basically has manipulated everything forever. Again, we're going we're gonna to get into him in more depth later, but basically what you need to know for our purposes is that bringing him into a kid's cartoon, even one that's pretty continuity heavy, is completely fucking insane. I have no idea what Mr. Sinister's powers are. I've um, been reading X-Men comics for literally 20 years. I have no idea what that dude's deal is. There is not a clean answer to that question, and there's never going to be. So Professor X and Magneto go to the Savage Land, right? Okay. They're stuck there. And every episode will have like five minutes uh, interspersed in where they're dealing with whatever they're dealing with in the Savage Land. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the rest of the team, you know, time passes normally. Like there is essentially a year happening 
And nobody is concerned about Professor X being missing, presumed dead. And to be fair, this is a guy who basically fakes his own death on a regular basis just to be a dick. If you lived with those guys, you'd fake your death too. (laughs) They're the 90s X-Men. They look like the 90s X-Men. So it's, you know, Cyclops, Wolverine, Jean Grey with no code name, which I've always hated, Mm -hmm. Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, Storm. The the team that you would find in the comic called Mm X-Men, adjectiveless X-Men. The stories that they take on, especially in season three, are the Claremont Byrne stories. So you get these weird episodes where Gambit is playing Nightcrawler and Rogue is playing Colossus, it leads to a lot of questions about, well, why didn't they just do this? Because those characters have vastly different powers and personalities. I think the tie-in to the comics is, is the answer to that, that they were they were looking for something that would be recognizable to kids who'd seen the comics and then that kids would recognize in the comics. What's weird about that, though, is that there was actually also a direct comics adaptation of that series called X-Men Adventures. Which was based on the uh, success of the Batman Adventures comic, which was not an adaptation. It was just set in the animated style universe by Kelly Puckett and Mike Parabek. Well, the- and the Batman cartoon is a much, much more substantial well yeah it is it is much better and it's this is wild i didn't realize this until chris and i started talking but the batman animated series the the bruce tim one was airing at exactly the same time as this x-men series and if you look at this x-men series in context of like previous superhero cartoons it looks great if you look at it in context of the fact that it's airing at the same time as that it is just like there's there's no comparison especially when you get to the ideas of bsnp bruce tim and paul dini really pushed back against that stuff there's a really kind of famous drawing that Bruce Tim did where it's everything they said they couldn't do. So, you know, they had this list of regulations from BSMP where it was like no guns, no gunshot wounds, no strangulation, no sex. Oh, and no broken glass. That was a weird thing. Mm-hmm. So it's Batman crashing through a window while Catwoman is strangling him and she's in like a negligee and he's getting shot with a gun and has a big hole in his chest. But they didn't they never went to that extreme on the show. But obviously there are guns in the opening. Yeah. Of Batman the Animated Series. And the, the no realistic weapons, weapons have to be futuristic, is something you see continually in the BSNP notes on X-Men, too. That you oh, know, must, that is... be, must be futuristic, must not be replicable is another big one. So you can't see, if Gambit picks a lock, he has to be off-panel or using his powers, for instance. That is my favorite thing about the Nightcrawler episode, mm-hmm. because when they introduce Nightcrawler, they use the Eastern European peasantry. Yeah. The, the mob of stereotypical Eastern European peasants who are dressed like they're in a Dracula movie. I assume that this is actually Latveria's prim- primary export. That it, Doctor Doom just so. like rents out groups of peasants with pitchforks. Yeah, so there's dudes in like the lederhosen and the hats with the feathers in it and like a guy who looks like a, a continental soldier. And they have laser guns. They have giant laser pistols. <laughs> I had completely forgotten that. Wow. I think Batman got around it in a lot of ways with the Art Deco stuff. Yeah. Like the guns... The guns are very recognizably guns, but they do have that kind of rounded art deco. Like, they're very pretty guns. Well, Batman's a lot more stylized in general. The X-Men cartoon, the first one, is trying really hard to basically be animated Jim Lee art. And it succeeds to varying extents, but you're not really going to see a a distinct stylized take with its own voice until the next animated series, which is X-Men Evolution. You can say that X-Men, the animated series, looks like garbage. Like, you can say that. It's fine, Rachel. There are, yeah, the thing is, I'm trying not to say that because there are, there are a few episodes where it gets so much worse that the rest of the series looks a lot better by comparison. Um, you're not a Jubilee's fairy tale yet. It is literally the worst animation that I have 
ever seen in a cartoon that actually aired. Miles has a theory, actually, that you can tell how rushed the animation is by whether or not Wolverine has arm hair. There's an episode where they color in his arms. So it's like he's wearing a long sleeve version of his costume. So they color in his arms, but they leave the arm hair. I, I'm going to I'm gonna side, just side that in my head, Ken, and that just means that he's wearing Angora. So I want to go back to how closely the series stuck to the comic because they pulled in a lot of really complicated, weird stuff. And sometimes it, it flopped dreadfully, but sometimes it really worked. One of my favorite episodes involves the Mojoverse, which is this this alternate universe that comes from a series tangentially connected to X-Men, um, the Longshot series. It's basically this, this weird, screwed up universe entirely obsessed with and themed around and organized around entertainment and television. And in the comic, it's a it's a cool concept and it's fun. And it's a little weird. It's um, an uh Art Adams series. When you take that concept and you pull it into an actual TV show, it suddenly becomes a whole, whole lot darker and a whole, whole lot more interesting. Yeah, we were talking about this the other day where in a comic, you get it, but it's always going to have that weird cross-media problem of being a comic that's trying to replicate the feeling of a TV show. And in the cartoon, um, you kind of it, feel it, complicit to it. Yeah, because you are actually watching the TV show where all this is happening. It's doing it's a parody of TV that is existing as a TV show, which is actually really fun. Plus, that episode has the Punisher in it, so I'm a pretty big fan. All right, so I want to move on to X-Men Evolution. Now, I mentioned this before as the first X-Men animated series that really had its own distinct look and feel. It's also the one that first really broke hard from comics continuity. It's it's basically high school X-Men. All of all of the X-Men live, or a bunch of them live at the Xavier School. They're all teenagers, and they're mostly teenagers. They all go to the local public high school whose principal is Mystique in disguise, and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are like rival students. It's a really silly premise. It literally, it reads like they got it off fanfiction.net. No, do you not like that premise? I don't know. Um... I like the show more than I like the premise. See, I think, that's funny because I like the premise more than I like the show. I feel like X-Men is such a teen drama already a lot of the time that setting it in an actual high school becomes so literal that it, it stops being as fun. Um, it's also It also creates a lot of really strange logic and continuity conflicts. So like like See, they all they all go to the Xavier Institute, but they also all go to public high school. So how do you how you know, how do they explain that? See, that makes way more sense for me because my problem with the Xavier School is who is teaching them like the subjects they need to be alive? Who is teaching them math? Making the X Mansion or the Xavier Institute. 100% focused on dealing with their mutant powers and training them to be superheroes and then letting them also go to school so that they basically have this paramilitary after school club, I think really works. I think it really makes sense. The other thing is that you talk about how the X-Men are already kind of a teen drama, which is true, but evolution allows them to really underscore that in a literal way. The pro- We talked about one of the problems with uh, X-Men, the animated series being that it is this weird literal translation uh, as opposed to Batman or even Spider-Man, where it was t- kind of trying to boil things down and present them in a way that would make sense for people who were new to the franchise. Evolution, I think, does that. And it does that by literalizing the metaphors and making them a little bit more relatable. So you have, you know, goth teen rogue, who I think is, again, a fantastic idea. Yeah. I <laughs> that said, say- I have only seen like three episodes of X-Men <laughs> Evolution and did not enjoy it. <laughs> If I recall, the ones you've mostly seen are season one, and it gets radically better over the course of the show. But I think, I mean, I think you're right about paring things down and about changing changing the circumstances. One of the things that it does really well, and one of the things it does by making them all teenagers who go to the same school, is make the Brotherhood a lot more sympathetic and a lot more 
it does a lot more with the concept of, of mutants as a collective class rather than as just like there are superhero teams and supervillain teams who happen to be mutants, that it's, it's sort of an everyone sinks or swims scenario. And like the original animated series, it does some pretty direct takes on a lot of original concepts from the comics, but I think X-Men Evolution is a lot more successful in adapting them and changing them and making them work in a new medium in a new context. Some of that has to be, I think, because they broke so far from the original plot. But for example, I love their version of Apocalypse, who's one of those characters who really bores me most of the time. Um, So monomaniacal and so insanely overpowered that he just, he stops being interesting. They managed to take that character and to take that character's MO and actually create a really, really original and really different, really surprisingly accessible spin on it. It was supposed to go on, it ran for four seasons, 52 episodes, and there was supposed to be another season, and they were apparently planning to tackle the Phoenix sagas in the next season, because that last episode ends with basically a montage of, here's all the animation we started, we're never going to get to finish, you bastards. I think the Phoenix Saga probably makes a lot more sense if you're looking at these kids as high schoolers than as these weird adults who look like they're 40, like they do in uh, X-Men the Animated Series. Like, there is no way Cyclops is under, like, 35 in, in that comic. You know, that's actually a place evolution really falls short, too, because I, it's a trope in live-action television having having high schoolers who look like, like they're 30, and there's just no excuse for it in animation, and evolution does it. Like, Jean Grey is the worst as far as that, but it's a pretty persistent problem. The other thing that evolution brought in, um, evolution has, we, we talked about Batman in the animated series, and one of the things that Batman anima- the animated series brought back to the comics was Harley Quinn. X-Men Evolution has... I love this analogy because it's the least appropriate one ever, that the Harley Quinn of, of X-Men Evolution is X-23. Oh, I thought you were going to go with Spike. No, but no, Spike is Spike is weird gender-swapped marrow. I think it's because of the costume, and maybe, look, maybe I'm just being super racist. I always thought Spike was kind of brought to comics as a tyke from the uh, ecstatics. Maybe we should talk about Spike, because there are, there are two black characters on this series, and they're related. And... <laughs> And one of them, like Spike's description literally could have come from that satirical Dwayne McDuffie pitch about black teenagers with skateboards that he wrote literally 10 years before the series was on the air. And it's just evolution gets a lot of shit right. Spike is not one of the things it gets right. It's been a while since I've saw him. He looks like Simon Phoenix from Demolition Man. And he fights crime on a skateboard. Like I am pro skateboard crime fighting in all its forms. I think you know that. I'm going to digress from X-Men for a moment, actually, because that brings me to something I keep on forgetting to ask you, which is whether Lindsay and Jem is actually Dazzler. Uh, I think you, I think you might have something there. That she's the she's the Dazzler of the of the Jem universe. Now keep in mind, Jem uh, was animated by Marvel Studios and Sunbow. Jem, the Inhumanoids, Transformers, and GI Joe are all set in the same universe, which has never been exploited in comics uh, until I get hired to do it. <laughs> all right, so that's X-Men Evolution. There's a third animated series that lasted for one season, and it's called Wolverine and the X-Men. It's the most recent one. Um, it was it aired um, in 2008 and 9 in Canada, 2009 in the U.S. It was 26 episodes, and the fact that it was not more should actually be a crime with legal repercussions because it was so damn good. It might be set, set in the same continuity as Evolution. It can be. There's no direct conflict saying it can't, and it's got a lot of the same creative team um, and definitely a lot of the same writers. I think uh, Chris Yost, who's one of the writers on, on Evolution, was either showrunner or lead writer on it. It's fantastic. It is really well animated. It takes basically the best of the previous two series, so it's got a lot of nods to the comics. It's got mostly adult cast. It takes the key concepts and the key aspects of the characters and sets them in a different enough context 
that they can really run in different directions and come up with stories that work well in a cartoon and work well, you know, in 2008 and 9 instead of in, in the late 70s. It's a really cool show. It also has a stunningly good voice cast. Um, I started watching it because it has, because um, Nolan North plays Cyclops and it's like my favorite voice actor as my favorite character in a cartoon about my favorite superheroes. So Stephen Bloom, who plays Wolverine, is also just superlative. Um, he is the best on-air Wolverine. You mentioned before Wolverine's your favorite character in the original animated series. And he's been done, he's really good in all three of those. But the one character who I think actually beats him as far as really faring well in adaptations is Beast. Yeah, which was frustrating when I went back to watch uh, the first season. Because Beast spends the entire first season in jail. Uh, he very rarely shows up. It's not till season two that he gets to actually be a part of the cast, which is when he is uh, trying to have sex with computers and also is in love with a blind girl who only shows up once. There's there's never been a bad Beast adaptation. He's he's great in the live action movies and these two radically different versions. He's really good in all of the cartoons. I don't know if he's that good in X-Men 3. <laughs> he's by the standards of X-Men 3. He's good. Well, yeah. Like if Which, we're if we're yeah, gonna agree on that curve, yes. But I actually really do like him in first class a lot. Likewise, and he's so in that way he's kind of the opposite of Storm, who has yet to actually not be terrible in an adaptation. She's like one of the best characters in the comics, and she there has just never been a good on screen Storm. She's awful in all of the animated series. In the movies, she's yeah. I have opinions about Halle Berry's Storm. That where um, if you could meet Storm somewhere, where would you like to meet her? A gay bar. You wouldn't want to meet her. At the monorail. Have you been just waiting this entire time for for something you could you could tag that onto? Yes. Okay. Now, if you haven't seen the X Men animated series, what you should know is that Chris does a really good impression of Storm from that. Like that that is literally what she sounds like, and she does not speak in anything that's not dramatically declarative in the, the original cartoon. It's yeah. it's stunning. Like she can order pizza and be like, "I would like mushrooms." And she, double cheese. She only speaks in pronouncements, <laughs> which is kind of great. Like it's the thing about watching the cartoon for the first time as an adult. Like I have no nostalgia attached to this and it's hilarious. The ways it's bad are generally pretty funny. I like it because it's the only acknowledgement that storm is storm is a goddess. Like she was worshiped as a goddess. So she speaks like Thor basically on that cartoon. She is a very, like, everything she says is spoken ex cathedra. We've got a bunch of questions, so I think we should dive into those. Uh, L. Marie Collins on Tumblr asks, has one for actually both of us, Rachel, which episode of X-Men Evolution should I watch to appreciate what's good about the show and see if it's for me? And Chris, which one episode of 90s X-Men should I rewatch to best enjoy the nostalgia and ridiculousness? Ooh, that's a, that is a tough one. Do you have one for Evolution? I do. I actually, I know Elle, so some of the, I have two recommendations. One of them is a personal rec- recommendation because I know that Elle shares my deep, deep-seated love for girl gang movies. And there's an episode of X-Men Evolution that's actually a really direct homage to that entire genre. Um, season two, episode 10 called Walk on the Wild Side. For a more general introduction to the show, I would actually start with season three, episode two. It's called The Stuff of Heroes. A lot of continuity has gone down before it, but you can pretty much dive in and it gives you a really good sense of the dynamic between the characters, the feel of the show and what makes it worth watching. And then you can go back to season one and be sorely, sorely disappointed. Uh, the two that I would recommend, the, the one that we talked about earlier in the show is episode uh, eleven of season or episode eleven of season three? It's called Obsession. It's the one written by an actual pickup artist, uh, a dude who we looked up, and he has written a book 
in order to tell 40-year-old guys how to hook up with 20-year-old girls. So it's written by a complete creep. Uh, it's got Apocalypse in it. It's got uh, Beast trying to have sex with a computer. It's got Gambit like lurking around corners when Rogue isn't paying enough attention to him. It's, it's a hoot. It's, it's bad, but it is the kind of bad where you're like, okay, yeah, this is exactly what this show is. Uh, the other one I would suggest is uh, Have Yourself a Morlock Little Christmas is always a good one. Oh, God, really? But the X-Men are complete assholes in it, and it's hilarious. Like, they realize that the Morlocks don't have Christmas, so they just, like, hang out in the sewer. They don't invite them to their nice house. Uh, The other episode that I would genuinely recommend, though, is from uh, season two. It's the Mojo episode, which, again, we talked about that. I think it works really well. As a uh, as a TV show, Psycho or uh, Psylocke makes an appearance. The Super Adaptoid is in it. Punisher shows up. There's a Miami Vice parody that happened in 1994 for all the kids who were not alive when Miami Vice was on. Yeah, it that's probably the most sort of subtle and grown up and written on two levels episode of the series. It really is. It's it's the one where you can tell like the the 40 year old writing staff was having a little fun with yeah, it's, it. It's it's really clever. I think that our next question is from Sanvir Bindra on, is it on Tumblr? It is, yeah. Uh, who says, when were the costume designs used in the show for the main team first introduced in the comics? And what's your opinion on the costumes? Which ones work best and which one's the worst? Okay, the majority of the costumes in the show come from the 1991 Jim Lee relaunch, um, where he redesigned the team. So these are the ones with the pouches and everyone's got leather jackets. There are two major exceptions to that. Those are Gambit, who pretty much keeps his original Mike Collins designed costume, which he did in the Jim Lee relaunch as well. And Wolverine, who basically sports the blue and gold costume from Dave Cockrum and Gil Kane for Giant Size X-Men number one in 1975, which he's really been wearing variations on pretty much forever. Yeah, there's the burn suit that's the the brown and orange one that he Does wears. Does that show up in the bit. cartoon? No, it doesn't. Uh, the only other costumes that come up in the cartoon are his crazy Weapon X gear, where it's mm-hmm. the black uh, head-to-toe suit with the gold pouches and stuff, which I had the action figure of and I really liked. <laughs> And uh, then his his Age of Apocalypse costume that he which gets, which is in amazing. Four. Which one would you say is the best of that crop, Rachel? Oh God. Um, I mean, I kind of like Rogues. I feel like Rogue is one of the only characters who the jacket really works for. Rogue, by her nature as a character, kind of has to have that head to toe covering. But if she's just there in a crazy, you know, skin tight bodysuit it looks weird like when you see her drawn without the jacket she looks weird Mm -hmm. so the jacket is a nice little accessory for her i think yeah the jacket actually feels like part of her costume rather than i'm in my costume and it's kind of chilly out so let's see what i can grab out of the coat closet which is what everyone else's kind of looks like right especially cyclops as far as the worst i mean i feel like gambit's kind of cheating because gambit's costume is the worst costume forever gambit's costume is so bad that i have kind of come back around to loving it once you realize he's peacocking it makes so much sense. <laughs> Something that I appreciate about the original cartoon that gets just completely ruined in evolution is um, when, when they do the, the, the requisite going back to New Orleans to seeing to see the Teves Guild. Um, Tithe, Remy. Right. Oh, that's the other thing is that they all do the accents exactly how they're written out phonetically in the comics. Oh, they do. They go, they go full Claremont on those accents, and it's beautiful. But um, they go back, and in the comic they're seeing the thieves on the assassins guilds, these two guilds that, that operate clandestinely. 
And there is more combined neon in those two <laughs> guilds than in the entire rest of like the 1990s put together. They are amazing. They look like they are the rave guilds. I really love that. I think for many of the same reasons that you love Gambit's costume and that it's so stupid that it becomes awesome. And they tone it way down in evolution. It was so disappointing. That's the whole point of going back to New Orleans is that everyone has ridiculous hair and like three pairs of neon sleeves. My thing about Gambit is that Gambit is a thief. That is his origin. That is his function. Mm-hmm. So what does a thief wear? Well, he wears a bright pink body armor suit. Uh, he wears literal metal boots for sneaking around. And he wears fingerless gloves so that he doesn't leave friends. Thief. Uh, I don't think his is the worst costume, though. It's Gene. Oh. Gene's 90s yeah. costume is like literally the worst superhero costume of all time. Okay, I'll be honest with you, Rachel. Mm-hmm. I don't like the original X-Men, the original five. The the only one I like at all is Beast. The other okay. ones I actively hate. Well, Warren, I just don't care about. Bobby, I just don't care about. But So what you're Gene saying is Cyclops. you actively hate Cyclops. I hate, I hate Cyclops and Gene. Okay. I think Cyclops and Gene are boring as hell. And I know that I know that that is a for people listening to an X Men podcast that is a travesty. Aww. But I, again, I think it's because I encountered them on the cartoon for two seasons. All Jean does is attempt to use her powers and then go Scott and fall down, and she does it in the worst possible costume. I hate that she doesn't have a code name, which sucks because Marvel Girl is a great code name, and so is Phoenix. Phoenix uh, is good. Both- I disagree with you about Marvel Girl. I think Marvel Girl is one of those code names that's really good. When your when your character is seventeen, I, I don't think Marvel Girl is a great code name for Jean, mm-hmm. but I think it's I, I think it's better than Jean Grey. I don't like. Why did she not have a code name in the nineties? I don't know. That's is something it just because that... like she comes back from being Phoenix and she's like, well, I'm not Phoenix anymore. But she, why doesn't she go back to Marvel Girl or Marvel Woman? I just don't understand why there's a team that has Cyclops, Wolverine, Gambit, Storm, and Jean Grey, and also that costume sucks. That costume, I'm trying to remember what it looks like, and I can't get a clear picture of it in my head, which actually sums up my biggest argument with it, is that it's really, really generic. It's so boring. It has absolutely nothing to do with her powers. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything. It is a nude-colored bodysuit with a big black V from the shoulders to the crotch, a giant X belt, and then a head sock, which sucks because the Phoenix costume is my favorite. Phoenix costume is great. Yeah, the, the, the Dave Cockrum Phoenix costume, which I always accidentally attribute to John Byrne because it looks so much like a John Byrne costume, mm-hmm. uh, is one of the best. I love the colors. I love the big Phoenix logo. I love the sash and the boots. Like, it is such a great costume. And then she goes from that to the 90s suit, which is garbage. Well, I think it's an extension of the Jean Grey problem. Miles and I talked about this in the first episode, but where she never really got much identity or much central metaphor aside from being the girl and so people have no idea what to do with her on a symbolic level like you have other characters and you can you can sort of dress them up based on personality or based on powers and she is just she's been created such that her only identifying feature is something that you absolutely can't build a costume around speaking of costumes we have a costume from an anonymous querent on tumblr who asks why won't beast put on a shirt in the 90s cartoon he does. Now, he does. He never puts on a shirt when it would be appropriate to do so. Yeah, he testifies topless in front of Congress. He testifies in front of Congress in briefs, which is amazing, <laughs> which is a life goal for me. He does science in a lab while wearing a jacket and just presumably shedding everywhere. But there is an episode in, uh, I think it's season three. I think it's during the Phoenix saga 
where they go to uh, the hospital to attend to Gene, and he is fully clothed. He's wearing jeans, he's wearing a jacket, he's wearing shoes, which is hilarious for Beast never, to wear. Yeah, he never even wears shoes in the comics. It's a thing in the Silver Age. Like, a group of beatniks start a cult around the fact that he never wears shoes. But he's wearing a t-shirt, and the t-shirt is a Howard the Duck t-shirt. That raises some really interesting questions. Oh, it raises a lot of questions. <laughs> of all the Marvel Universe cameos in uh, X-Men the Animated Series, and there are a lot. Uh, Captain America makes a cameo. Doctor Strange makes a cameo. And Captain America um, makes a cameo in everything that involves a Wolverine flashback. That's that's yes. like that's a rule, except for the movies because they don't have the rights to him. But but literally, like there's something contractual where when you do a Wolverine flashback episode, it has to have Captain America in it. But Howard the Duck being on Beast T-shirt is weird. Although it does make perfect sense that if Beast was going to read a comic, he'd be really into Steve Gerber, which also raises some questions. Yes. Uh, Greg Thelen asks, what's the deal with Morph? Was he a good character or what? Oh, man. So we managed to go through all of this and talking about the original series and where it differed from the comics without mentioning Morph. Morph is the other guy. He's based on he's, he's an original to the, the animated series character, but he's based on Kevin Sidney, who is the changeling in the Silver Age. Um, he's a Roy Thomas character. He showed up really briefly, and he's most famous for his role in one of the many times that Xavier faked his own death, which happens a lot. Um, now they're not actually the same character and the, the, the running explanation is that Morph is an alternate universe version of the same dude. And the reason for that is that when he finally showed up in the comics, it was in the reality hopping series Exiles. Um, and their Morph is from Earth 1081. This is for those of you playing along at home with your, your, your multiverse bingo cards, which should be a thing that exists. And the main continuity differences between that universe and the main 616 universe are basically morph exists so a whole bunch is subtly different um and the phoenix gets killed right and that civilian name is a retcon because it is never mentioned on the show no he doesn't he doesn't actually get that name applied until um until exiles i think that's something else that we didn't talk about which was i I don't know if this was a uh standards and practices note or just something they wanted to do to make things easier for the kids no one gets a civilian name except gene and scott not until the second season. Like, the first season ends with Cyclops proposing marriage, and she goes, I love you, Cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> Which is hilarious. So, Morph on the show was created because they uh, needed someone to die in the first episode. And I assume and he- that BSNP had explained to them that they could not use the only Native American character in X-Men for decades for this, which is, is what happens in, in the actual series. So they just make up a new guy, and it's Morph, who has the power to turn into... He's a, he's a shapeshifter. He's a cartoon. The, yeah, he's a cartoon. And then the Changeling connection is retconned much later. What's interesting about Morph 2 in the first episode is that he is Wolverine's BFF. Like, they are super tight. And it's really strange because Wolverine is, I mean, he's Wolverine. He's the super serious, growly, anti-authoritarian dude. And the only person he gets along with is this guy who's basically intensely silly. He does impressions. Yeah, he does impressions. Well, Please. real quick, do you think Morph is a good character? Um, In the cartoon? No. I think he's a good character in Exiles. I think he is a perfectly acceptable X-Man to be sacrificed in their first mission and lead Wolverine to say things like, You left him behind, soldier boy! You know, I sort of disagree with that because I don't think you, you actually get to care about him enough for that to make a difference in the first episode. No, but Wolverine does, and that's all that matters. They, they, yeah. they do, in that first episode, they do a really good job of making Wolverine super pissed off that they had to leave Morph behind. 
it it comes through really well. It's one of the one of the highlights of that pilot. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go through some more BS and P notes before we wrap up because I've got I've got a few more and they're wonderful. Uh, please do not show Wolverine and Sabretooth quote trading blows unquote socking each other with their fists. <laughs> so you can't you can't look. I was thinking maybe they thought trading blows uh, meant something else that I would agree you probably should not show on a cartoon for children. Me too. But, but then they've got that parenthetical. Yeah, like, you can't show them punching each other? Nope. Sabretooth can't say he wants to kill Wolverine. They can't actually be shown hitting each other. Uh, Sabretooth's capture needs to look non-violent um, in one of those episodes. This oh, is- that's the episode where they leave Jubilee alone with Sabretooth. Yep. They're like, Jubilee, you stay here with Sabretooth. We're going to go check this out. It's too dangerous for you to go with us, but you can definitely uh, stay here with Sabretooth alone. Please do not show hospitalized patients being grabbed by tentacles. Okay. Haven't gotten there yet. See, uh, please do not have the townspeople, quote, splatter, unquote, when Sinister blasts them. They may melt or some such. <laughs> Wait, is is melting is melting really less violent and horrifying than splattering? I think maybe the idea is if they melt, they're they're more reconstitutable. Splattering seems more permanent. And then from the same episode, this is this is one of those someone at BSNP kind of hated their job notes. As noted at outline stage, a fight will not be acceptable in the teaser. Sabretooth may not slam into Wolverine, who may not be hurled into a brick wall and knocked unconscious. Rogue may not be, quote, smashed, unquote. Beast may not slam into Sabretooth, and so on. Guys, it is an action cartoon. Well, they, they can do what they do every time Wolverine pops his claws, which is just have him flail around and cut people's clothing in non-suggestive ways. And again, like you talked about this with the the Sentinels in the last episode. That's the one thing they can do. The one thing they can do is go sick house on the Sentinels. Yeah. And Wolverine is always so strange in cartoons to me because the thing he does is have big knives that come out of his hands and last a really long time in brutal fights. Yeah, like, his power is that you can beat him up and then he can still stab you. So That's the challenge of taking him and putting him into a context where he can't stab anyone, he can't punch anyone super hard, and he can't get really beaten up, it's always a really interesting challenge. And it's interesting to see how differently the different shows go about that. I think Evolution, again, handles that best by making him a teacher at the school. Um, he and Storm are the two the two of the X-Men who are actually adults, and they're, they're teachers at the, at the Institute. And putting him in that more sort of mentoring paternal role gets around a lot of a lot of those issues. The thing that really sets up Wolverine on X-Men Evolution for me, like I said, I've seen very few episodes, but this is something that uh, Chad Bowers, who's my co-writer on a lot of my comics, uh, and I will talk about, is that the first time you see Wolverine in that pilot, he goes into a bar and goes, water, cold. It's like, oh man, this guy drinks cold water. What a badass. <laughs> There's there's a moment much much later on. Um, the first season, no, the, like the first two and a half seasons, are the, pull out the Silver Age miserable Cyclops Marvel girl sexual tension. Neither of them will actually talk to the other thing. And there's a scene in in season three in the episode. I remember the episode title, but not where it is. It's called Blind Alley, where Scott's talking to Wolverine. He's trying to figure out how to ask Jean out, and he he's he's putting it in really oblique terms. It's like if you ever if you just really. We felt strongly about something like you just needed to do it. And Wolverine goes on this great soliloquy where it sounds like he's talking about a girl and it turns out he's talking about a motorcycle. The other thing about that, about creating that, making the character that old is it really, really changes the Wolverine Cyclops dynamic and it makes it a lot less like making them direct rivals never made a lot of sense to me because they're characters who are so different in concept 
that the, their their rivalry almost becomes boring. And I have always I've always really hated the the Wolverine Gene Cyclops love triangle. Probably because I hate two thirds of that triangle, and also because like is, is like is, does Wolverine really think like he's the guy for Gene? Like no, dude, come on. She, she's not going to Madripoor and wearing an eye patch with you. Would, would you go to Madripoor and wear an eye patch for Wolverine? Uh, obviously. Only high town though, not low town. Um, we will be back next week. Uh, we are figuring out our schedule for the next few weeks. There are some potential guests that we're kind of shifting things around with, but. Of the next three episodes, one will be a an overview of alternate takes on the Silver Age, where we look at Children of the Atom, um, X-Men Season 1, X-Men First Class. Another is going to be a walk-up to the Days of Future Past movie, where we go through the weird, weird, dark futures of the Marvel multiverse, make a lot of darkest timeline community jokes, and talk about our favorite and least favorite parts of the movies. And the third will lead into, really, the rest of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, and then that we're going to jump into Giant Size X-Men number one, which introduce the modern era of x-men as usual we'll have clips and links up on the blog chris thank you again so much for joining us and well, thank you thanks, for having me rachel thank you everyone for listening